Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Benjamin Coates about his newish book, Legalist Empire, International Law and American Foreign Relations in the Early 20th Century. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2016 and was reissued as a paperback in 2019. The book deals with something that might appear paradoxical to our 21st century sensibilities. In the wars of 1898 and their aftermath, international law became a really key feature of U.S. foreign policy. Um, It appears as a paradox because the era is remembered for its militarism. You know, you can think of Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders storming across Cuba, um, aggressive colonial expansion into the Pacific and the Caribbean, taking colonies, and even the use of really brutal methods such as torture to quash indigenous revolts. But Coates shows the international law and international lawyers were there all along. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Dexter. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it, it was a real pleasure to um, to read your book. Um, I I did not know the U.S. history of international law, um, and you tell a lot of that uh, a lot of that history. So I learned tons, um, and I, I know that this book <laughs> is based off of a dissertation which you began a long time ago. But I, I'd really like to hear why you decided to investigate this particular topic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of casting around for a, a dissertation topic in, in graduate school, and I, I was interested in the early 20th century U.S. Uh, foreign policy, and, and, and in particular, you know, the, the sort of expansion of its overseas empire. Um, and I'd never really thought about law. I'd always, assumed, I'd always thought that thought of international law as, as you know, kind of epiphenomenal. Um, and what actually sparked my interest was I went to hear a, a talk given by uh, the scholar Christina Duffy Ponce Kraus, who is now uh, at Columbia Law School. I, I'm not sure if she had she was officially there yet or not, but anyway, she, she came and gave a talk at Columbia uh, about the Platt Amendment. And the Platt Amendment is this uh, amendment in the Cuban Constitution that the U.S. required before it would withdraw its troops um, that had been occupying Cuba since the end of the, the Spanish-American War in 1898. Um, and so it, it's often seen as, uh, you know, through the lens of imperial hypocrisy. The United States had, had fought this war, had claimed to, to fight the, the, the Spanish-American War um, as a kind of act of, of anti-colonial uh, you know, making Cuba free from from Spanish uh, colonial rule, and yet here it was creating a protectorate in Cuba with the Platt Amendment. Um, and I mean, that's certainly true. Like it is definitely the Platt Amendment is definitely a, an act of of imperial hypocrisy. Um, but what this talk, uh, why this talk was so interesting, is because. Um, uh, Christina Duffy Ponce Kraus argued that well, really, the imperial aspect of it shouldn't surprise us. 
you know, the, the, the United States is much more powerful than Cuba. Cuba is very close to the United States. You know, American policymakers have been kind of fantasizing about um, making Cuba a colony since the early 19th century, if not uh, before then. What was surprising or what is surprising about the Platt Amendment is the form that it took. You know, why did the United States decide that it needed to formalize this kind of neocolonial relationship through uh, a constitutional amendment? Um, and so that 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 did, you know, once I thought about that, I was like, well, that is strange. You know, why did they do that? Um, and so I started to look more into into the, the situation and uh, and discovered that you know, not only was the early 20th century this period of American imperial expansion, but it was also the period in which international law became professionalized, which a profession of international law emerged in the United States. And um, many of the same people were active in both of these projects simultaneously. That is, they were building the international law profession, and they were working on building the American empire, often at the same time. Um, and so the more I looked into that, you know, I, I, the, the more of these kinds of relationships I discovered, and then that became the topic of, of the dissertation and then the book. You know, why is it that, that, these, that these two products are happening at the same time? Um, because as you mentioned in your introduction, we tend to think of empire and international law as oppositional. You know, international mm -hmm. law, the rule of law is supposed to restrain the powerful and, and protect the weak. Um, and, you know, so how is it that these two things are happening at the same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's really interesting, and also that's um, uh, a, a good lesson for uh, um, you know young grad students to attend lectures because that might be the uh, the source of your eventual uh, dissertation topic. Um, but uh, yeah, you you just posed the question that I'd like to ask. Um, so you know, how can we even think about international law and empire together? Um, because you know. Today, when we think of international law, it's usually framed as something that constrains the behavior of states, you know, usually powerful states. Um, and so, you know, but as you really show in your book, um, you know, these imperialists um, uh, were also um, very much interested in constructing um, like a, a legalistic empire um, uh, within a um, sort of like international legal order. Um, and so... Yeah, why why would an empire, a rising empire, want to create such an apparatus? Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, one way of, of of answering that question is to think about the position of the United States in the world from a sort of geopolitical standpoint. Um, and the way I see it is, is in some sense, the, the United States is a, is a kind of a status quo power in the sense that it is it's uh, it's increasing its um, Hegemony in in Latin America. I mean, now before World War One, that, that doesn't really go far beyond um, the Circum Caribbean, right? I mean, South America is still uh, Britain is is much more influential there, and with with Germany coming on as well. Um, but you know, the United States is is not enmeshed in the kind of uh, uh, military power competition that's going on in Europe. In, in the beginning of the 20th century. So you could make a case that, well, the United States as a kind of second tier power um, hopes that through international law, it can prevent the outbreak of a kind of imperial war, or not necessarily imperial war, but kind of, a, of a, you know, what becomes a world war that would ensnare the United States. So you, you could make the case for interest there. Um, but I, I think that, that an equally powerful argument involves um, ideology and 
and even identity. Um, and, and the key ideology that I talk about in the book is, is the ideology of civilization. Um, and I think civilization both explains how international law could be used to uh, support imperial projects, and it also explains why you could make the, the credible case in the early 20th century that international law would work to create a peaceful world. Um, so when, I, when we talk about civilization, we have to remember at the time it meant generally it had a singular meaning, right? So today, sometimes people use the word civilization. Well, people don't use the word as much as they used to. Um, but but uh, in the 20th century, people sometimes use the word civilization as kind of a synonym for society, right? So you could talk about Chinese civilization, you know, Indian civilization, Western European civilization. Um, but in in the early 20th century, when people use the term civilization, they almost always meant it in a singular sense um, and, and in a hierarchical sense. So you could rank societies on a kind of spectrum from civilized to, uh, you know, barbaric or savage. Um, and there was also a sense that uh, things could change over time, at least potentially. Um, so both in the sense that, that the world as a whole is becoming more civilized, and this was the argument why uh, something like the international court could bring peace, that you know, as, as, uh, as countries and, and publics came to understand the rights and duties of states under international law, they would increasingly come to settle their, their differences through legal means rather than through violence. And the, the analogy they often use was to dueling. Right. You know, uh, elite Americans in the 18th century would settle their disputes by dueling. They didn't do that by 1900. And so the argument is, well, same thing will, will happen in the international sphere. Once we kind of build up a legal apparatus and, and build up knowledge of law, um, people, you know, war, war will go the way of the duel and we'll, we'll settle things like gentlemen. Um, but the other aspect of civilization, that sense of hierarchy justified um, uh, empire as well on the grounds of the civilizing mission. Um, the sense that uh, uh, colonized states were, were less civilized but could be made eventually more civilized through a kind of colonial tutelage, and that justified uh, empire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, that is definitely one of the um, like changes over time that, um, uh, that your book documents, and then also... Um, uh, I don't actually know how to pronounce his name, but uh, Marty Koskaniemi mm -hmm. in, in his book, um, that, uh, you know, like earlier um, iterations of international law, um, you know, Hugo Grotius and, and so on, um, they imagined international law to be this universal thing, this thing that should be applied universally. Um, whereas, um, you know, when you get to the end of the 19th century, this discourse of civilization um, starts to become the, uh, like the, 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 the gauge for whether uh, international law was applicable. Um, and I think that they, that's like, that is really the thing that makes your story legible, like why an empire would even want to yeah, like sort of like work within international law, build international law. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to remember that that international law is uh, a form of political argumentation, especially in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. right? There's no international court. There's obviously no international government. Um, so international law is a way of, of making your argument. It's a way, you know, it can provide ways of, of creating settlements by uh, you know, having common, commonly understood 
types of behavior and, and creating expectations for reciprocity. Um, but, but, you know, ultimately it, it's a kind of a political argumentation and that's where civilization comes in. And we can talk about that later in some of the specific episodes that I look into where, you know, a lot of what, what passes as legal argument is in many ways a kind of, of, you know, in, in invocation of, of the discourse of civilization. Yeah. And so another thing that I would love to hear more about is just the origins of international law itself in the U.S. Um, can you say something about like, like where it came from, you know, when it started to cohere into um, like an actual object of study, a way of understanding the world? Yeah. So, of course, international law has very deep roots. And if you want to define it in its most abstract way as, you know, agreements between separate um political entities, then, you know, you could go back into the centuries BC. Um, I think most scholars would say that modern, what we think of as modern international law uh, is, is mostly a, a Western European project um, that emerges in the early modern period in part as a way of governing relations between, you know, fractious European nation states. Um, but, but importantly, as a way of dealing with the differences in the relationships between Europe and the outside world, um, because before those, you know, outside of those relationships, there is a kind of, you know, combination of of uh, Roman law and Christian law that suffices to to govern European relations. But once you you have relations with, say, the Ottoman Empire, or or really importantly, um, in the 16th century, once you introduce the Americas into the um, into the situation, then it becomes a question of well, what kind of law applies to them, because you know, does does papal law apply? You know, does, does does Roman law apply to to the Americas? Probably not. Um, and and the you know we can see the origins of these ideas of civiliz of civilizational difference uh, there as well. Um, in terms of the United States, um, international law is important to the U.S. from the beginning. It's called the Law of Nations um, in the 18th century. Um, but there's a great great quote from Ben Franklin, which I'm probably going to mangle, but it's something like. You know, a rising nation must consult with the law of nations. And so, you know, in in the the the, the beginnings of the U.S. And, and during the Continental Congress, you have folks like Washington and Franklin passing around copies of Emmerich de Vattel's um, book on the law of nations. And 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 uh, uh, I think there's at one point, um, uh, maybe 10 years ago, it was discovered that George Washington had never returned two books to the New York Library. Um, they tried to calculate what the, the overdue fines would be, but um, at least one of them, I think it was, was either Vattel or Rocious, right? So this is something that's important to, to the U.S. because as it emerges, it needs international recognition. You know, initially during the revolution, it needs France, it needs help from France. Um, but even afterwards, it's trying to be accepted as um, a recognized nation in the society of nations. So it needs to understand how international law works. And so within the constitution uh, itself, it says that the law of nations is, is part of the law of the United States. Um, but how do we go from the law of nations to international law? And I think that's something that begins to happen in the period that I study. Um, because really until the late 19th century, when people wrote about the law of nations, they wouldn't describe themselves as international lawyers. Um, someone like Grotius, um, you know, or they write about all kinds of stuff, right? These are these are sort of broad intellectuals. They write about religion. They write about um, trade. They write about philosophy. Um, they're not strictly uh, international lawyers. Um, and so, 
international law starts to be defined as a separate profession, as kind of a specialized profession in the late 19th century. As you mentioned, Martikos Kanyemi has written about this, the, the founding of the Institut de Droit International in uh, 1873 in, uh, in Belgium. And um, there are some Americans who are involved in, in that, um, uh, uh, Francis Lieber, David Dudley Field, but they kind of fall out. And so by 1900, you have very few Americans who are part of that society. Um, and that starts to change in the early 20th century uh, with the establishment of the American Society of International Law in 1906. Um, and then, really importantly, the, the founding of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in 1910, which just has a tremendous amount of money. Uh, I think it's $10 million at the time, but that's equivalent to several billion dollars today. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, you know, has the potential to sort of transform the, the field, both in the U.S. and, and in Europe. Yeah. Um, and so uh, just to go back a little bit, um, uh, so... One of the stories that I found really powerful in sort of you know, demonstrating your your argument about the um, uh, the importance of international law in this period is um, John Bassett Moore's role in um, uh, the the U.S.'s taking of um, uh, the the Panama Canal. Um, and uh, it's 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 really fascinating because um, John Bassett Moore. Um, you know, a lawyer within the State Department um, provided counsel that was really important um, uh, um, to Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and then afterwards, although like the the events themselves kind of went in a different direction, but um, afterwards um, he helped Roosevelt sell the U.S.'s actions um, uh, uh, to an American audience. And can you just like walk us through this story? Yeah. So John Bassett Moore uh, was the preeminent authority on international law in the early 20th century. He was a professor um, at Columbia um, in the he was in the politics department, um, but but he was a professor of politics and international law. Um, and he was a guy who kind of circulated through all of these different networks of, of what law was doing at the time. So he was a professor, but he also served several stints in the State Department in the 1890s, again in 1898. Um, and then in 1913, 1914, um, he was in the State Department. And the rest of the time, he was not only at Columbia, where he was writing all these really long treatises uh, about international law, but he was also a, a, a lawyer for hire. So he worked for a whole bunch of big corporations, for you know, Standard Oil, for uh, banks, um, uh, you know, everyone, you know, if you had a, a problem that needed an international lawyer um, and you wanted the best, you would, you would seek out John Bassett more. Um, so the what happens in Panama, I'll just give a little bit of background to, to the Panama situation. So Panama, of course, was part of Colombia until 1903. Um, and it's obviously this, this really important strategic location. You know, the fastest way to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific or vice versa was to cross the Isthmus of Panama. And so Americans had been involved there since the mid 19th century. Um, the uh, New York company had built Panama Railroad in the 1850s. Um, and even before that, in 1846, the U.S. had signed this treaty with Colombia, uh, the bidlack Mayorino Treaty, in which the U.S. guaranteed the neutrality of the area of the Isthmus of Panama, basically kind of promising to make sure that you know no European country would seize it. And in exchange, Colombia granted the United States the right of free transit for its officials, for its citizens, and for its merchandise. So in 
so this was seen as kind of a, a win-win, a way to, to you know, help make the, the isthmus a, a place of transit and for the Americans to, to guarantee it as a place of transit, but also to benefit from it. Um, now, by the late 19th century, thought turns to building a canal. The, the success of the Suez Canal was, was uh, part of this. And, and the French are the first to try it. Uh, de Lesseps tries to build a canal beginning in 1879, but ultimately fails. And so the U.S. decides it's going to build a canal. Um, and it's committed to this by 1901. Um, and after some debate as to whether they should build it in Panama or in Nicaragua, they decide on Panama. So Teddy Roosevelt, who's now president, starts negotiating with Colombia about the terms of this. Uh, project, you know, how much would the United States have to pay? Uh, what kind of tolls would be charged? You know, what sort of rights would the United States have over the canal zone? That sort of thing. And they come up on an agreement. They, they sign a treaty, but that treaty is then rejected by the Colombian Senate. Um, now, Roosevelt is sort of unwilling to take no for an answer here. And this is where John Bassett Moore comes in. Um, he's one day he's having a conversation with, uh, uh, one of the assistant secretaries of state, a guy named Frank Loomis, and he kind of mentions, he goes, oh, you know, I've been looking into this issue, and you know, I think we have a good argument, uh, a legal argument uh, to make as to why we should be allowed to build this canal. And Loomis says, okay, well, you know, why don't you write up a memo and I'll, I'll give it to the president. So Moore writes this memo, he gives it to Loomis, Loomis gives it to Roosevelt, and in it, there's sort of two main arguments. Um, and again, go, to go back to what I was saying earlier, like civilization is, is central here. So the first argument more are, says that Colombia essentially has, an, has a duty to civilization to allow the building of a canal. Um, and as evidence for this, he cites a speech from uh, 1858 from the then Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State, Louis Cass. Um, which, you know, is essentially saying that the, the progress of civilization of the world depends on expanded trade and that, that in, in, in return depends on, you know, transit across the isthmus. And so Moore says, well, now when we think about what does trans transit mean, it means building a canal. So that's one argument he makes. The second, you know, the slightly more legalistic one is he goes back to that treaty of 1846. And he says, well, since it guaranteed free transit for U.S. officials and, and citizens and merchandise, we really can interpret that to mean the right to build a canal, because that's now the most efficient way to ensure that transit. Now, I mean, neither of those is a really good argument, in, in my opinion. Um, and again, this sort of highlights the way that international law is, is about political argumentation and as much as it is, you know, technical, um, uh, technical law. Um, in any event, I think what, what Moore has in mind when he writes this memo is he, he's assuming that Roosevelt is going to go back to the Colombians and negotiate more. And so this is just something else that, you know, another argument that Roosevelt can kind of pull out to get a better deal. He hadn't realized that, that or at least he claims to not have realized that, that Roosevelt was done with negotiating by this point. And so after he reads his memo, Roosevelt uh, invites Moore to come out and, and, and spend an evening with him at his, his uh, estate in Oyster Bay on Long Island. And they talk about this and... And Roosevelt says, you know, when I read this memo, I think it means that we have the right to just go and start building the canal by ourselves, no matter what Columbia said. Um, now, uh, in fact, the historian Richard Collin uh, actually thinks that Moore's memo is sort of key in, in leading Roosevelt to, to come to this conclusion that, you know, I'm done with the Colombians. We're, we're just going to go ahead. Um, so the issue, the, you know, why doesn't Roosevelt just do that? The problem is that it, it would be really controversial politically. Um, 
you know, there had been a, a lot of public support for the Spanish-American War. There was initially uh, some support, at least, for for um, uh, colonizing uh, the Philippines. But by 1903, you know, the, the, the U.S.-Filipino War, which was very bloody and, and full of, of, of massacres and other things, that had come back in, in the press and, and was very controversial. And so Roosevelt, I think, understood that simply to invade Panama um, was going to be problematic. What ends up happening, of course, is uh, that um, there is a revolution in Panama. Um, so a guy named Philippe Bunavaria, who was a, a, a French citizen, um, he held a lot of stock in the French Canal Company. He wants the U.S. to build a canal and to buy that stock from him, to buy the, the rights to build a canal from the French. And um, he winds up sort of leading this, this revolution in Panama on the assumption that the U.S. will step in and protect the, the, the leaders of this revolution from Colombia. And this is, of course, exactly what happens. The revolution breaks out and the U.S. Navy sails in and prevents Colombia from sending reinforcements to Panama because there's no real way to um, the, the jungle is too thick to get uh, reinforcements by land. You have to you have to put them in by boat. So the U.S. Navy steps in and, and stops stops Colombia. Um, and it turns out more seem to have some role in this as well. It's not entirely clear to me what happened, but, um, you know, how did how did. Philippe Bunavaria come to the um, conclusion that the U.S. would back this effort. Um, one reason is he met with Roosevelt, and, and Roosevelt seems to have given him a wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, but the other is that he somehow got wind of Moore's memo, um, and that seemed to, to, to convince him that the U.S. Was, would be on board in supporting this revolution. Um, so then the next thing is that uh, even though the U.S. doesn't invade Colombia, it very, it very invade Panama or, or Colombia, uh, it, it very clearly, you know, had, had had taken the key role in helping Panama break away from Colombia. And so this does inspire a ton of criticism of Roosevelt, especially from his political opponents. And so he brings more back and says, "Hey, I need your help writing a message to Congress to justify what I've been doing." And he shows more his draft and more later writes in in his uh, unpublished memoirs. Um, that you know the the statement that Roosevelt had was you know lacked any kind of legal justification. It was completely um, not up to the task. And so Moore writes 15 paragraphs, which he sends to Roosevelt, and Roosevelt just incorporates those into the end of the statement. And later on, Roosevelt writes to Moore, you know, thank you. I hope you enjoyed our speech, and I, I call it our speech because of your role in, in helping me craft it. Um, but when I read those paragraphs, it's kind of amazing. Again, there isn't really much that we would think of as legal in them. It's, it's the same kind of civilizational <laughs> arguments, just just like rehashed again. Um, you know, moralistic terms, you know, the, the U.S. has a mandate from civilization to build a canal. Uh, and this is demanded in the interests of mankind, as, as Moore puts it. Uh, so, you know, really, I think what the, the value of this message is helping Roosevelt justify what he's doing to himself and helping the Americans assuage any, any lingering guilt they may have had about their imperialistic uh, actions in Panama. Um, and then just to, to kind of put a cap on the story, uh, more, you know, when he wasn't consulting for the government or, or helping private corporations, he was working on these on these long digests. And one of his, his most influential is called the Digest of International Law published in 1906. It's many volumes. It was actually commissioned by, by the U.S. government. And it's, it's sort of interesting to read when you think about what is international law. It's really like it's essentially a diplomatic history of the United States organized around legal topics. 
Um, and the way Moore wrote is he, he, as far as I can tell, he kind of just took home like vast amounts of, of records from the National Archives and wrote them up. Um, <laughs> you would take them to the beach uh, in Delaware and, and, and sit, sit inside and, and work on this in the summer. Um, and in this, he ends up writing a section about Panama and he includes in it, this is, so this is 1906, it's a couple years after what had happened. Um, he includes in it these statements from Roosevelt. You know, the statements that Moore had written for Roosevelt, he then includes this. Here's a statement from the United States. You know, he doesn't mention that his role in writing them or anything. Um, and and then this stands in for, you know, here is state practice. Here is the official record of the United States. Here's what the U.S. did in regards to, to Panama. And, and it winds up becoming a kind of justification for the legality of what the U.S. did. It's almost sort of like a bootstrapping legality here. Um, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I mean, that, that <laughs> the circularity is, is, is really awesome. Like, uh, to, you know, like th- these things that I, you know, these words that I put into the president's mouth are now precedent. Right. Um, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, yeah um, and, and Alfred Thayer Mahan, you know, the famous naval strategist, you know, a couple years later wrote this letter to Moore saying, you know, I'd always thought what we did in Panama was kind of dodgy from a legal perspective, but then I read your digest and now I'm totally convinced that it was all on the up and up. So. <laughs> that is so fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and you can kind of just see the, um, yeah, like the, the role of, or like the function of international law as this, um, you know, this like, uh, this like ideological glaze that kind of just can, uh, um, that can like justify things that would be dodgy, um, but in this, this way that seems objective. Um, uh, and yeah, and so um, another key piece of evidence that I found really interesting was um, the second Hague conference in 1907. Um, and the thing that I found really interesting was like who actually attended. Um, and so you, you talk about how, you know, mm. in the, in, in previous diplomatic um, conferences, you know, the, the concert of Europe, for instance, it was dominated by aristocratic diplomats. And then, um, you know, even the, uh, the Geneva Conference on on Laws of War um, was mostly attended by doctors and military officials, um, and then here we get to mm-hmm. um, you know the Second Hague Conference in 1907, and you say that it was just dominated by lawyers, and I think that's that's a really um, uh, mm-hmm. just like a really interesting change over time that um, that you're documenting here. Yeah, and it, it, it represents this larger transatlantic flourishing of uh, kind of belief in the power of, of international law to solve disputes. Now, of course, there are always skeptics, um, but there were lots of believers too. Um, and so, so the, the American Society of International Law, you know, among its membership were virtually every man who served as Secretary of State from the late 19th century up through 1920. Um, and, you know, Elihu Root served as president of, of the ASAL. He was also secretary of war and then secretary of state and then senator and sort of the, probably the, I mean, I, I think definitely the sort of leading forward policy voice in the Republican party in the early 20th century, um, himself a lawyer and, and a big backer of this international law project. Um, so at the Hague in 1907, um, I think there were two things that are, that are really interesting about the U.S., participation there. One is that the U.S. 
uh, kind of takes the lead in in trying to create a permanent international court. In fact, mm -hmm. the delegates mm -hmm. refer to this plan as the American plan. Um, now, you, you know, there was an international court at the time. What states mostly used was a process called arbitration. And in an arbitration, each side would, um, there, was a, there was an important diplomatic element in an arbitration. So you would have to agree on what would be the rules, the specific laws you were going to follow, you know, what would be the procedure. And then each side would appoint an even number of arbitrators. Um, and then those arbitrators would sort of agree on a tiebreaker. So you'd either have three or sometimes five people in total. Um, and then they would they would uh, try to come up with a settlement. So there were there were international lawyers in the U.S. who who said you know the problem with arbitration and the reason why states aren't using it more aren't using as much as they should because it's not legal enough. What we really need is is a permanent court that's going to have judges who are elected you know based on their on their legal chops um, you know on their fitness as legal scholars. Um, you know if you look at a lot of these arbitrations. Um, sometimes the arbitrators would be like the king of Norway or something. Um, they weren't necessarily people well-versed in, in international law, although that was starting to change by the early 20th century. You did have more and more technical competence on these arbitra arbitral panels. Um, but this sort of uh, fascination with, with, with judges, I, I refer to this as a kind of judicialist uh, conception of international law. And I can go into this more later if you want, but but it's it's sort of tied to these larger debates within the United States about the role of courts um, in in society. Um, so that's one thing that happens at the Hague is, is the U.S. puts forward this project for an international court. It winds up failing um, in part because they can't agree on how you're going to figure out who the judges are. Like there are 44 states represented at the Hague. Does that mean that every state gets to elect one judge or, you know, should the larger states get to have more power? Sort of the same issue with, with the, the Security Council of, of the UN um, today. Um, then the other thing that, that I kind of highlight um, is there's this fascinating debate at the Hague in 1907 about uh, intervention. Um, and so uh, Luis Drago, who is the foreign minister of Argentina, uh, had a couple years earlier uh, announced what, come to, what, what, what came to be known as the Drago Doctrine. And that was the argument that it should be illegal under international law for states to intervene to collect debts. So, you know, if, if um, say, the Dominican Republic, you know, floats some bonds and then fails to pay them um, uh, to, say, a German citizen, and that citizen then could, under international law of the time, could enlist the German government to help him recover his, his debts by force, if, if necessary. And so Drago, the Drago Doctrine says, well, that should be illegal. And so there's this whole debate. Um, and uh, the U.S. winds up supporting a kind of, well, it's, it's called the Porter uh, Resolution. It's sort of a compromise. It basically says that, that states should not uh, intervene to collect debts. However, um, there should be arbitration first. And if a state refuses to arbitrate, then uh, in that case, uh, intervention is justified. Um, so that might sound fine. You might say, well, yeah, what's wrong with, with arbitrating? Um, the problem is that when I look at, you know, a couple of the, the case studies that I examined, um, oftentimes arbitration winds up being fairly unfair as well. And it tends to favor the, the creditor countries against the debtors. Um, so, so this is part, what's going on at The Hague is actually a good example of how international law is, is both seeking peace and promoting empire uh, at the same mm -hmm. time. 
Yeah, I, I, like so. Um, the story that um, uh, really struck me was the Venezuelan crisis, which I think mm-hmm. um, you kind of you kind of see this playing out um, uh, um, quite effectively. You know, the um, like Euro- European countries uh, um, were in some sort of conflict with the Venezuelan government, um, mm-hmm. uh, and then eventually led to. Um, the uh, like the European countries blockading Venezuela, mm-hmm. um, and then arbitration was introduced, and then that um, actually um, rewarded the blockaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you like can you kind of walk us through this and uh, how it connects up with this um, uh, armed debt collection uh, debate? Yeah, so um, there was a, a civil war. I guess you could call it a civil war in in Venezuela in 1901. Um, and, uh, and during that war, uh, you know, various things were done to, to European investors and European creditors. So there were debts that went unpaid. There were ships that were seized, um, and, and Europeans complained to Venezuela and that the president, Cipriano Castro, refused to, to pay them what they thought or what they claimed they were owed. And as a result, Germany, England, and Italy, uh, blockaded and bombarded uh, a couple coastal towns. Venezuela, and then I think physically seized the custom houses. And so, of course, back then, you know, most countries didn't have um, personal income taxes. So almost all the government revenue would come from tariffs, which were collected at these customs houses. So if you physically occupied the customs house, then you essentially, you know, had had control of the government's revenue stream. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's this bombardment, um, and they agreed to arbitrate, uh, and this went before the, the permanent court of arbitration, which had been set up at the first Hague conference in 1899. And the judges ended up ruling, yeah, not only was this blockade legal, um, because individuals didn't have standing under international law, um, they had, they had to be represented by their governments. And the argument was, well, these, these foreign investors, um, they'd had their rights violated and, and it was perfectly okay for Europeans to, to stand up for their rights. Um, but what you alluded to, you know, what made it most made this worse is that the, the, arbit- the arbitration ruled, you know, not only was it legal to, to blockade, but that the, the, con- the company, the, the countries that led the blockade, their citizens were entitled to preferential payment afterwards. Um, because, you know, other, Citizens of other of other countries, you know, France, the Netherlands, the U.S., were also claiming uh, that they need deserve to be paid by Venezuela, and, and the, the permanent court of arbitration said, yeah, but you know, the, the the companies that actually forced Venezuela to arbitrate, they they should get paid first. So this seemed to be an incentive uh, for further intervention, and this leads to the Roosevelt corollary um, because you know initially Roosevelt had said. Uh, oh gosh, this quote is something like, you know, if, if an American country uh, misbehaves, let the Europeans spank it, right? Quote, very Rooseveltian kind of turn of phrase. Um, so, you know, it's not my problem. But then he eventually decides that actually it's, it's not a good idea to have these Europeans intervening in the Americas because they might ultimately decide to, to seize some territory as payment. He's especially worried about, about the Germans uh, in particular. So the Roosevelt corollary is is in 1904 1905 Roosevelt saying you know the um, in cases of chronic wrongdoing as he puts it uh, where foreigners are mistreated someone has to intervene and since we don't want Europe to do it it'll be the United States um, and so the Roosevelt corollary I think can be seen as as 
uh, Roosevelt deciding that the government needs to get involved in, in preventing these sorts of private disputes from, from generating uh, enhanced um, European intervention. But there's another, there's also an international law strategy that goes along with it um, in, in a kind of parallel to this. Um, so this has led, do you want me to continue here? Or? I'm just sure, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's also this international law uh, strategy, and and uh, this is is led by Elihu Root. So, um, Teddy Roosevelt brings Root in as Secretary of State in 1905, really to deal with this problem of of clashes between investors and and Latin American governments, especially in the kind of Caribbean and, and surrounding areas, Central America, Venezuela, etc. Um, this one uh, thing I look at in particular uh, in, in Venezuela involves this this company, the New York and Bermudas Company, which actually was involved in mining asphalt in in northern Venezuela. Um, when I first heard about that, I was like, what do you mean mining asphalt? What, what is that about? But uh, essentially, you know, asphalt is a hydrocarbon like oil. Um, and at the time, it was being used to pave all of these rapidly growing American cities. Um, they hadn't quite figured out how to make asphalt from petroleum byproducts, which is, I think, how they make it now. So you would actually mine it from you dig it out of these giant tar pits. Um, and so the New York and Bermuda's company in the 1880s had gotten title to this concession in Venezuela, this enormous lake made out of asphalt. Um, and it was supposed to mine it and then ship it to the U.S. and it would pay, you know, fees to the Venezuelan government based on how much it mined. But it turned out like many other um, uh, uh, industries at the time, there was an asphalt trust, an asphalt monopoly. Um, that owned the New York Bermuda's company. And so they actually decided it was in their interest not to mine this asphalt. They had other sources. Uh, it just wasn't worth them from a cost perspective to, to, to dig up this asphalt and ship it to the U.S. And as a result, that meant lower revenues for, for the Venezuelan government. So this led to um, uh, a conflict between Cipriano Castro and, and this New York company. Um, and in 1901, the company actually decided uh, that it, 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 it was so concerned about its investment that it bankrolled uh, a revolution against Castro. So they bought a, they bought a gunship in England and then sent it over, um, to supply the forces of this general, uh, Matos, who was, who had risen up against the government. And it's actually that conflict that generated a lot of the, the, the claims of the Europeans who then bombarded the, the country a couple of years later. Um, in any event, after Castro, you know, kind of consolidates his power, in 1904, he decided to he expropriated this property from from the New York and Bermuda's company, um, and so they decided that they needed to get this property back. They needed the help of the U.S. government to do so, and so who did they go to? They went to John Bassett Moore and hired him to represent them. Um, and Moore's papers, incidentally, are are at Columbia. Um, and it was great. They're, they were just when I looked at them, they were in these unorganized bankers boxes and they were like still tied, you know, from whenever they had tied them up in like 1947 after Moore died and you cut the string and you could see the outline of the string on the paper and everything. Um, and so he's got all his business records. And then you can see this case he was building for the for the New York and Bermuda's company. Um, and uh, so that's in 1904, 1905. Um, and in 1905, actually, he gets this case through various people in the department, uh, in the State Department, and they decide that, yeah, this is a good case, and they issue an ultimatum to, uh, to Castro. Um, 
And so it looks at this point as though war is going to be likely, as though the U.S. is going to intervene on its on its own in Venezuela. And this is when Roosevelt asks Root to come in and says, look, I need you to deal with this Venezuelan problem. Root, in turn, hires uh, as a solicitor, which is a, a, a sort of legal post in the State Department, uh, a guy named James Brown Scott, who is uh, soon comes to be the sort of most important figure in the, the American international law profession. He's the, he's the guy who runs the American Society of International Law. He's the editor of the American Journal of International Law. He's the head of the Carnegie Endowments Division of International Law. He's sort of the guy behind the scenes who controls all the bureaucracy of the profession. Um, but he's hired. Root doesn't know him. He just brings him in because it's like, this seems like a guy who's, who's good, you know, who understands international law. And I need someone to vet all these claims that these companies are making. Because I think Roosevelt and Root both understand that while, it's, while they think it's important to back American businesses, that sometimes these businesses are also corrupt and that they sometimes make really inflated claims about what they're owed. So this is this idea that Root has that, look, if we can um, you know, increase our, our legal expertise. And so he hires a bunch of lawyers in the State Department. I think there's three of them in 1900. By 1910, I think there's 18 lawyers in, in working for the State Department in one way or another. Um, and, uh, the hope is if we kind of legalize this process and he believes in international law, that this will weed out the bad claims and it will, it will make it possible for us to make a good legal case for the good claims. Um, and so they, there's this series of legal investigations of the New York and Bermuda's company. Um, and they wind up in the end saying, yeah, you know, there's something sketchy here about these claims. You know, the fact that the company tried to overthrow the government, that doesn't seem to be totally on the up and up. But at the same time, we can't really find any holes in the legal case. Like Moore is able, because of the way international law is understood at the time, uh, Moore is able to make the argument that that the company uh, should have the U.S. government back it up. And so, uh, um, you know, Roots applies kind of consistent diplomatic pressure to Venezuela. And ultimately, after Castro is overthrown, the, the new uh, president comes to power, recognizes that if he wants good relations with the U.S., if he wants more investment, um, he's going to have to to listen to these arguments. And so they end up returning the the uh, property to the New York and Bermuda's company. So here's a case where, you know, sort of international law um, and, and the role of men like John Bassett Moore actually has you know, a real important impact. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think that story, it, it, it reveals so much. I mean, it reveals that um, you know, the, like the, the boundary between, um, you know, like, you know, so-called formal empire and so-called informal empire, um, was, uh, very, very porous. Um, you know, like you have like lawyers who were in the state department now working for private companies, but then you also see how professionalization, um, uh, is playing out in, um, James Brown Scott's role. Um, like, you know, he's this, like, once you have professionalization, you know, have, um, you know, like, a, um, an established network of lawyers that you can turn to for, for legal advice. Um, so I think it's a, a really powerful story in your book. Um, I, I was wondering though, if you could, um, maybe take a step back and, and say a little bit more about the role of, um, lawyers in, yeah, like in, in capitalist firms and enterprises, um, uh, like it, uh, you know, it, um, it, like it, it does come up throughout your book that these companies are also turning to lawyers, um, quite a bit in this time period. And so I'm just wondering if you could, um, say something about that. 
Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the the, the late nineteenth century is the emergence of the kind of modern corporation in the United States, um, the rise of these interlocking trust companies, um, uh, the the need to to grapple with enhanced uh, government regulations. And so lawyers play an important role in all of this. I mean, this is how Elihu Root comes to prominence, representing um, a lot of these big companies in New York. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it comes to be understood. Yeah, if you're going to be a big company, you need you need to have uh, lawyers on your side. So you see the emergence of, of what comes to be called the white shoe law firms in, in New York City. Uh, Root has one of them. Um, Crevasse, Swain and Moore, which is still an important uh, firm, has its origins in this period. And uh, there is a kind of natural um, uh, affinity between between that kind of legal work and then the work for companies that have overseas interests as well. Um, and that's also connected to, to professionalization too. I mean, the the, the American Bar Association um, begins to require more and more training. You know, in the 19th century, most lawyers did not go to law school, um, but but the, the they they start to be required to do so in part to sort of uh, uh, enhance the authority of of the legal profession. Yeah, I mean it's 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 um, it's really astounding. Just yeah, like everyone uh, you know, like in the um, uh, American Empire is lawyering up, um, whether it's the State Department <laughs> or uh, or these firms, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, so I, I want to get to the end of your book. Um, uh, so we're, yeah, we're not going to be able to talk about everything. Uh, obviously sure, of course. the, the, the first world war is uh, another um, important moment in all this, but I, I'm, I'm really interested in sort of how um, this period ends. Um, and for you, it, it comes down to, or at least the way I read it, it comes down to, um, well, one of the one of the reasons why is uh, um, Woodrow Wilson and his disdain for international law, um, and um, you know, like uh, uh, as someone you know, as an outsider to to this topic, um, I was surprised because Wilson is so often associated with international law, or at least you know we associate uh, um, his liberal world order with international law. Um, uh, but, uh, you make it pretty clear that he doesn't like international law. So can you, um, can you talk about how this, um, uh, epoch ends for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, a little bit about Wilson, um, you know, say so he doesn't trust international lawyers. And I think this goes back to the, the last question. He sees lawyers in general, I think, as kind of captured by corporate interests and, and he applies that to international lawyers as well. Um, and so there's this this fascinating conversation um, that I talk a little bit about in the book between him and John Bassett Moore in 1913. Um, uh, Moore was named a counselor of the State Department, which is sort of like the second ranking position in the State Department in 1913 um, after Wilson had taken office because uh, Wilson had appointed William Jennings Bryan as the Secretary of State, basically as a, you know, to to, to reward Brian for mobilizing his followers on behalf of Wilson. Um, but Brian was seen as someone who didn't have any specialized knowledge in diplomacy, and they felt like, well, we need someone who actually knows what he's doing. Um, and, and Moore was a Democrat, even though he'd also served in Republican administrations. So they hire him. And um, Moore and Wilson had this whole argument about what to do about Mexico, because Wilson wanted to intervene um, to oust from power uh, this guy, uh, uh, Victoriano Huerta, who had... Um, who had himself come to power in a coup. Um, and Wilson saw Huerta as being backed by 
British and American oil interests and sort of said, you know, this is, this is, we need to intervene almost as an anti-imperial move um, to, to protect the Mexican people from, from this kind of foreign neocolonialism. And Moore's like, well, you can't do that like under international law. There's no, that doesn't work. You know, you can, if you want to oppose imperialism, like you could sort of do it through the lens of sovereignty, like, like Calvo and like the, you know, the Drago doctrine. Um, but you can't like assert this right. And there's this whole back and forth where, where Wilson's just sort of incredulous. Like, what you mean that's the law? Like, why can't I do that? And Moore's like, no, it's very clear. Um, and, you know, Wilson had actually taught international law at Princeton in the 1880s, but he had taught it basically as morality. Um, like I looked at one of the, the notes that one of his students had taken in the Princeton archives. And, and, you know, he basically taught as philosophy. Um, he didn't really see it as connected to, to contemporary politics in the way that Moore did. So he doesn't trust lawyers. He doesn't invite any of the, the sort of standard international lawyers to Paris to the peace conference. Um, Robert Lansing, who was the secretary of state was an international lawyer who was active in the, in the ASIL and such, but he was pretty much marginalized at the, at the conference and Wilson clearly didn't like him. Um, so that's part of it. But more broadly, what happens at, at Paris is the sidelining of the kind of legalist projects. Um, and Stephen Wertheim has a great article in the journal of world history where he looks at this and, you know, in, in the U S there was an alternative to Wilson's league called the league to enforce peace which was the first kind of mass movement in favor of, of a concrete plan for the settlement of the war. You know, Wilson was very vague on what he wanted to do at the end of the war. He didn't, he didn't announce it in detail until, until the war was over, um, or at least until, until 1918. Um, the LEP, the League to Enforce Peace, had uh, their plan was basically the pre-war plan of an international court with on top of it what we would now call collective security so the idea was that under this plan you'd have a league of nations and uh, if there was a dispute you would have to submit your dispute to conciliation arbitration or preferably an international court and any state that went to war before um, the verdict from the court was delivered would automatically be branded the aggressor and all the other nations would attack it um, so that was the sort of legalist plan for world order. It was like, we take the pre-war vision and then we put this plan for enforcement on top of it. Um, the French had a similar idea. Um, and there were some, some people in England with it as well. Uh, but, but the, the leadership of, of, uh, British foreign affairs community didn't like this and neither did Wilson. And so, what the League of Nations did was, although it, it eventually included an international court, or at least plans for an international court, this was like over Wilson's protest. He didn't want any international court at all, but they eventually included one. But really, the essence of the League was the council, right? This, this, it's a place for the head, for political leaders to get together, um, to discuss their problems, and then to use their discretion to find a solution. Um, so it was not a legalist kind of solution. You know, it was very different from what someone like Elie Giroud wanted. Um, so that's one important reason why the, the legalist era declines. The other is, I think, just the undermining of the notion of civilization. Um, you know, the, the, the legalists before 1914 could make this claim that all we need was an international court. We don't need an enforcement mechanism of any kind because as nations become more civilized, they will willingly submit to the rulings of an international court. Um, that didn't look so 
promising after 1914. <laughs> um, and so kind of pretty much everyone, I mean, James Brown Scott continued to hold on to that vision, but pretty much everyone else said, no, you know, if we want to have some kind of organized world institution, we need an actual institution. We need, you know, some kind of political component. We need some sort of enforcement mechanism. Um, and then the other thing, and this is perhaps a bit more speculative, but you know, I think uh, the, the sense of transatlantic civilizational continuity was also damaged by World War I. Um, and in its wake, it was harder to see, it, I think it was harder for many Americans to imagine cooperate, to, to imagine that there was a single transatlantic community. Um, I, I, you know, that the term isolationism is, is a misnomer at this, in this period, but, um, you know, a lot of opposition to League of Nations was based on anti-imperialism, was, you know, we shouldn't be, be, uh, on the same side with these European empires uh, who, who started World War I in the first place. Um, this isn't our fight. We need to be out of it. Um, so I think it's that, that the, the, the combination of the sort of Wilsonian uh, rejection of, of international legal mechanisms with the disillusionment of World War I that, that shunts international law to the side, although it certainly never disappears, but um, it's, it, it doesn't hold the same appeal that it had before 1914. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the speculative argument um, uh, definitely seems persuasive to me. Um, I mean, I, I, reading Stephen Wertheim's book, I was really struck by how uh, um, like damaged even international organization was as a mode of engagement with the world um, in the United States in the 1930s. Um, like, obviously, there were tons of people that were like tons of Americans affiliated with the League of Nations and supporting the League of Nations and um, uh, and so on, but um, uh, yeah, like like thinking about cooperation um, was uh, uh, at least in these like yeah like formal legalistic uh, um, uh, modes seemed uh, just didn't, didn't seem that appealing. Um, uh, yeah, and yeah, and, and international law itself changed too. I mean, um, people talked about a new international law of the nineteen twenties, the sense that this this older kind of classic style, uh, formal more formalist style was now outmoded, um, you know, neutrality was no longer so important. Instead, what you needed was an international law that was connected to, you know, actual events and actual social science. So it kind of mirrored this, this the rise of legal realism in, in the domestic U.S. Uh, legal academy. Um, mm -hmm. International lawyers, too, said, you know, we, if we want to understand the world, we have to bring in social science, right? We can't just read old diplomatic yeah. arguments and, and cases. And hence, you get the the rise of international relations in this period as well. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think in the twenties and thirties, those those are sort of competing with each other, right? Yeah. Like that, that that it's it's more fluid. And then by the late thirties, there's international relations scholars who who I mean, like Morgenthau, like starts as begins as an international lawyer, and then kind of takes this position of you know, law doesn't work. <laughs> we need mm -hmm. we need more emphasis on power. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I, we could talk about this for so much longer, but I do, um, and I know we're going over time, but that is okay. Um, as long as it's okay with you, um, I um, would love for you to briefly sort of um, put this story in the context of like the late 20th, early 21st centuries, um, uh, because um, uh, 
uh, yeah, like in the, in your conclusion, you point to several continuities and divergences. Um, and I think the, like the continuities are actually surprising, or at least they were surprising to me. Um, and so I'd love for you to yeah, briefly just maybe, um, share some of those with, with listeners. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, that I didn't know about before I started this project was the extent to which, you know, law is so infused into the American policymaking apparatus today. Um, and I think I have a quote uh, from from George W. Bush, or at least, you know, attributed to George W. Bush. I'm actually going to look it up real quick so I don't mess it up. But, um, uh, oh, yeah, he says after after 9-11, he, he was reported to have said, quote, I don't care what the international lawyers say. We're going to kick some ass, right? So there's this sense yes. that, that the Bush administration <laughs> just rejects international law completely. Um, but actually, it's more complicated. Uh, and, I you know, I don't give a full account of this in, in the conclusion because it's very brief, but, um, but, you know, there are, there are thousands and thousands of lawyers in the defense department, you know, as well as the state department and the office of white house counsel. And really what they're up to is in some ways, I think, continuing what John Bassett Moore was trying to do. And, and even what Elliot, what Elliot Guru was trying to do, which is sort of find a way for your client to do what they want to do, um, while staying within the bounds of law. Um, and what happened, as I understand it, in, in the Bush administration was that in the first uh, administration, you know, in, in 2000, 2001 to 2005, the arguments that were made were not convincing to many people. So especially like the, the, the so-called torture memo and that sort of thing. And, and what happened in the second Bush administration from 2005 to 2009 was like, let's find a way to still do what we want to do, but, you know, maybe pull it back a little bit. And, and, and put it within the bounds of, in, of domestic and international laws, which, after all, are, um, you know, very emboldening, you know, in themselves. Like, they allow you to do a lot of things. So we don't need to do what we can't do. Um, and so that's, I think, really what, what happens in the, the second Bush, Bush administration and then continues on in, into the Obama administration with sort of the laws around the use of drone warfare and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, Sam Moyne has, has a new book coming out on the rise of humane war, which is, which is really about, you know, how you can find ways to legitimize continued warfare within uh, legal bounds. So in that sense, I think there's definitely continuities with the early 20th century. What's different is uh, it's harder to find people today who believe that that international law on its own provides uh, a way to end war and to bring peace to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, listeners um, to this podcast can uh, um, can expect a, a Sam Wayne interview with me um, later this year, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, yeah, and so like reading that conclusion, um, really, it, it put um, your story um, in a really interesting perspective. It really shows just how law, international law, um, yeah, like it's a constraining force, but it also is an enabling force and then like mm-hmm. when it enables it can, can prov- it can provide this moral legitimacy um uh um that uh um you know policymakers don't have when they you know do things unilaterally or um uh when they go against international law um and you start yeah like you start to see the the, the power of international law for um a, a powerful state like the united states um and um I, yeah, and again, we could talk so much more about this, but um, uh, I do want to wrap up. So, you know, this book came out a, a while ago. Uh, I, I imagine since then, uh, you know, you've been working on another project. Um, do you want to share with listeners what that project is? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not working on a book. It's, it won't be out for a while, but um, it's a, a history of, of, uh, of U.S. and economic sanctions in the 20th century. Um, and uh, I'm, in some ways, it's, it's a, an attempt to kind of figure out how we came to the point that we are at now, when, in which you know sanctions is like the go-to foreign policy for, for the United States. Um, and in part, that's a story of recent years of the 1990s and 2000s, but it has longer roots too. Um, and so what I'm hoping to do in the book is kind of trace three different components of sanctions. One is the, the sort of intellectual history story. So how have people thought about you know, what sanctions are, what they're supposed to be. There's this really interesting duality where on the one hand, sanctions are seen as an alternative to war, um, you know, as a way of bringing peace uh, without war. Uh, and that emerges you know, during and after World War I. Um, on the other hand, sanctions are, it can be seen as just sort of war by other means, right? You know, things that you know, through through economic warfare that, that cause, you know, tremendous civilian suffering in, in certain cases. Um, so there's an intellectual history, you know, also about the kind of debates about do sanctions work? You know, when I'm not actually that interested in that question, but more interested in the why have when and when and why have people thought sanctions work and, and think and, and when have they thought they don't work? Um, so there's that aspect. There's also uh, a kind of um, legal administrative aspect, like the creation of of uh, a government apparatus that allows the United States to impose sanctions around the world. You know, how how do you do that? Um, what are the laws you have to pass that that grants uh, executive emergency authority. Um, there's all these emergency laws that are passed at different times in the 20th century. Um, the trading with the enemy act from World War One is still around uh, today um, and under underlying a lot of these things. Um, and then lastly, there's the diplomatic story about you know when when the government has actually imposed sanctions and what it thought it was doing at the time and you know everything from uh, you know the debates around the League of Nations sanctions in the 1930s through um, the, the rise of foreign funds control against Nazi Germany in the 1940s, the you know, Korean War, China, uh, Soviet Union in the Cold War, Cuba, uh, you know, Rhodesia, an idea of, of sanctions for, for human rights through the United Nations, um, and then you know, into our more recent period where sanctions are, are used for, for everything and anything. So it's, it's, it's been a fun project to work on, um, and I think certainly emerged out of some of the questions I had in this book, you know, how to think about internationalism, um, and, and, and moral arguments and that sort of thing, uh, as well mm -hmm. as the legal component. Well, that sounds really, really interesting. And I, I look forward to, um, to it coming out whenever it comes out, uh, <laughs> put pressure on you. Um, and, uh, Ben, I want to thank you for talking with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and, um, again, learned so much from your book and learned even more from, uh, our, our last hour together. Thanks, Dexter. It was fun. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been speaking with Benjamin Coates about his book, Legalist Empire, International Law and American Foreign Relations in the Early 20th Century. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network.